Book Two, Chapters Sixteen and Seventeen of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews, by Henry Fielding. Book Two, Chapter Sixteen. A very curious adventure in which Mr. Adams gave a much greater instance of the honest simplicity of his heart than of his experience in the ways of this world. Our travellers had walked about two miles from that inn, which they had more reason to have mistaken for a castle than Don Quixote ever had, any of those in which he sojourned, seeing they had met with such difficulty in escaping out of its walls when they came to a parish and beheld a sign of invitation hanging out a gentleman sat smoking a pipe at the door of whom adams inquired the road and received so courteous and obliging an answer accompanied with so smiling a countenance that the good parson, whose heart was naturally disposed to love and affection, began to ask several other questions, particularly the name of the parish, and who was the owner of a large house, whose front they then had in prospect. The gentleman answered as obligingly as before, and as to the house, acquainted him it was his own. He then proceeded in the following manner. Sir, I presume by your habit you are a clergyman, and as you are travelling on foot, I suppose a glass of good beer will not be disagreeable to you, and I can recommend my landlords within as some of the best in all this country. What say you? Will you halt a little? and let us take a pipe together. There is no better tobacco in the kingdom. This proposal was not displeasing to Adams, who had allayed his thirst that day with no better liquor than what Mrs. Trulliber's cellar had produced, and which was indeed little superior, either in richness or flavour, to that which distilled from those grains her generous husband, bestowed on his hogs, having, therefore, abundantly thanked the gentleman for his kind invitation, and bid Joseph and Fanny follow him, he entered the ale-house, where a large loaf and cheese, and a pitcher of beer, which truly answered the character given of it, being set before them, the three travellers fell to eating, with appetites infinitely more voracious than are to be found at the most exquisite eating-houses in the parish of St. James. The gentleman expressed great delight in the hearty and cheerful behaviour of Adams, and particularly in the familiarity with which he conversed with Joseph and Fanny, whom he often called his children, a term he explained to mean no more than his parishioners, saying, He looked on all those whom God had entrusted to his care to stand to him in that relation. The gentleman 
shaking him by the hand, highly applauded those sentiments. They are indeed, says he, the true principles of a Christian divine, and I heartily wish they were universal. But, on the contrary, I am sorry to say the parson of our parish, instead of esteeming his poor parishioners as a part of his family, seems rather to consider them as not of the same species with himself. He seldom speaks to any, unless some few of the richest of us. Nay, indeed, he will not move his hat to the others. I often laugh when I behold him on Sundays, strutting along the churchyard like a turkey cock through rows of his parishioners, who bow to him with as much submission, and are as unregarded as a set of servile courtiers by the proudest prince in Christendom. But if such temporal pride is ridiculous, surely the spiritual is odious and detestable. If such a puffed-up, empty human bladder, strutting in princely robes, justly moves one's derision, surely in the habit of a priest it must raise our scorn. Doubtless, answered Adams, your opinion is right, but I hope such examples are rare. The clergy whom I have the honour to know maintain a different behaviour, and you will allow me, sir, that the readiness which too many of the laity show to contemn the order may be one reason of their avoiding too much humility. Very true, indeed, says the gentleman. I find, sir, you are a man of excellent sense, and am happy in this opportunity of knowing you. Perhaps our accidental meeting may not be disadvantageous to you neither. At present, I shall only say to you that the incumbent of this living is old and infirm, and that it is my gift. Doctor, give me your hand, and assure yourself of it at his decease. Adams told him he was never more confounded in his life than at his utter incapacity to make any return to such noble and unmerited generosity. A mere trifle, sir, cries the gentleman, scarce worth your acceptance, a little more than three hundred a year. I wish it was double the value for your sake. Adams bowed, and cried from the emotions of his gratitude, when the other asked him if he was married, or had any children, besides those in the spiritual sense he had mentioned. Sir, replied the parson, I have a wife and six at your service. That is unlucky, says the gentleman, for I would otherwise have taken you into my own house as my chaplain. However, I have another in the parish, for the parsonage house is not good enough, which I will furnish for you. Pray, does your wife understand a dairy? I can't profess she does, says Adams. 
I am sorry for it, quoth the gentleman. I would have given you half a dozen cows, and very good grounds to have maintained them. Sir, says Adams, in an ecstasy, you are too liberal, indeed, you are. Not at all, cries the gentleman. I esteem riches only as they give me an opportunity of doing good, and I never saw one whom I had a greater inclination to serve. At which words he shook him heartily by the hand, and told him he had sufficient room in his house to entertain him and his friends. Adams begged he might give him no such trouble, that they could be very well accommodated in the house where they were, forgetting they had not a sixpenny among them. The gentleman would not be denied, and, informing himself how far they were travelling, he said it was too long a journey to take on foot, and begged that they would favour him by suffering him to lend them a servant and horses, adding, withal, that if they would do him the pleasure of their company only two days, he would furnish them with his coach and six. Adams, turning to Joseph, said, How lucky is this gentleman's goodness to you, who, I am afraid, would be scarce able to hold out on your lame leg. And then, addressing the person who made him these liberal promises, after much bowing, he cried out, Blessed be the hour which first introduced me to a man of your charity. You are indeed a Christian of the true primitive kind, and an honour to the country wherein you live. I would willingly have taken a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to have beheld you, for the advantages which we draw from your goodness give me little pleasure in comparison of what I enjoy for your own sake, when I consider the treasures you are by these means laying up for yourself in a country that passeth not away. We will, therefore, most generous sir, accept your goodness as well the entertainment you have so kindly offered us at your house this evening, as the accommodation of your horses to-morrow morning. He then began to search for his hat, as did Joseph for his, and both they and Fanny were in order of departure, when the gentleman, stopping short, and seeming to meditate by himself for the space of about a minute, exclaimed thus, Sure, never anything was so unlucky. I had forgot that my housekeeper was gone abroad, and hath locked up all my rooms. Indeed, I would break them open for you, but shall not be able to furnish you with a bed, for she has likewise put away all my linen. I am glad it entered into my head before I had given you the trouble of walking there. Besides, I believe you will find better accommodations here than you expected. Landlord, you can provide good beds for these people, can't you? Yes, and please your worship, cries the host, 
and such as no lord or justice of the peace and the kingdom need be ashamed to lie in i am heartily sorry says the gentleman for this disappointment i am resolved i will never suffer her to carry away the keys again pray sir let it not make you uneasy cries adams we shall do very well here and the loan of your horses is a favour we shall be incapable of making any return to ay said the squire the horses shall attend you here at what hour in the morning you please and now after many civilities too tedious to enumerate many squeezes by the hand with most affectionate looks and smiles at each other and after appointing the horses at seven the next morning the gentleman took his leave of them and departed to his own house adams and his companions returned to the table where the parson smoked another pipe and then they all retired to rest mr adams rose very early and called joseph out of his bed between whom a very fierce dispute ensued whether fanny should ride behind joseph or behind the gentleman's servant joseph insisting on it that he was perfectly recovered and was as capable of taking care of fanny as any other person could be but adams would not agree to it and declared he would not trust her behind him for that he was weaker than he imagined himself to be this dispute continued a long time and had begun to be very hot when a servant arrived from their good friend to acquaint them that he was unfortunately prevented from lending them any horses for that his groom had unknown to him put his whole stable under a course of physic this advice presently struck the two disputants dumb adams cried out was ever anything so unlucky as this poor gentleman i protest i am more sorry on his account than my own you see joseph how this good-natured man is treated by his servants one locks up his linen another physics his horses and i suppose by his being at this house last night the butler had locked up his cellar bless us how good nature is used in this world i protest i am more concerned on his account than my own so am not i cries joseph not that i am much troubled about walking on foot all my concern is how we shall get out of the house unless god sends another peddler to redeem us but certainly this gentleman has such an affection for you that he would lend you a larger sum than we owe here which is not above four or five shillings very true child answered adams i will write a letter to him and will even venture to solicit him for three half-crowns there will be no harm in having two or three shillings in our pockets as we have full forty miles to travel we may possibly have occasion for them fanny being now risen joseph paid her a visit and left adams to write his letter 
which having finished he dispatched a boy with it to the gentleman and seated himself by the door lighted his pipe and betook himself to meditation the boy staying longer than seemed to be necessary joseph who with fanny was now returned to the parson expressed some apprehensions that the gentleman's steward had locked up his purse too to which adams answered it might very possibly be and he should wonder at no liberties which the devil might put into the head of a wicked servant to take with so worthy a master but added that as the sum was so small so noble a gentleman would be easily able to procure it in the parish though he had it not in his own pocket indeed says he if it was four or five guineas or any such large quantity of money it might be a different matter they were now sat down to breakfast over some toast and ale when the boy returned and informed them that the gentleman was not at home very well cries adams but why child did you not stay till his return go back again my good boy and wait for his coming home he cannot be gone far as his horses are all sick and besides he had no intention to go abroad for he invited us to spend this day and to-morrow at his house therefore go back child and tarry till his return home the messenger departed and was back again with great expedition bringing an account that the gentleman was gone a long journey and would not be at home again this month at these words adams seemed greatly confounded saying this must be a sudden accident as the sickness or death of a relation or some such unforeseen misfortune and then turning to joseph cried i wish you had reminded me to have borrowed this money last night joseph smiling answered he was very much deceived if the gentleman would not have found some excuse to avoid lending it i own says he i was never much pleased with his professing so much kindness for you at first sight for i have heard the gentlemen of our cloth in london tell many such stories of their masters but when the boy brought the message back of his not being at home i presently knew what would follow for whenever a man of fashion doth not care to fulfil his promises the custom is to order his servants that he will never be at home to the person so promised in london they call it denying him i have myself denied sir thomas booby above a hundred times and when the man hath danced attendance for about a month or sometimes longer he is acquainted in the end that the gentleman is gone out of town and could do nothing in the business good lord says adams what wickedness is there in the christian world i profess almost 
equal to what I have read of the heathens. But surely, Joseph, your suspicions of this gentleman must be unjust, for what a silly fellow must he be who would do the devil's work for nothing. And canst thou tell me any interest he could possibly propose to himself by deceiving us in his professions? It is not for me, answered Joseph, to give reasons for what men do, to a gentleman of your learning. You say right, quoth Adams. Knowledge of men is only to be learned from books, Plato and Seneca for that and those are authors i am afraid child you never read not i sir truly answered joseph all i know is it is a maxim among the gentlemen of our cloth that those masters who promise the most perform the least and i have often heard them say they have found the largest veils in those families where they were not promised any but, sir, instead of considering any farther these matters, it would be our wisest way to contrive some method of getting out of this house, for the generous gentleman, instead of doing us any service, hath left us the whole reckoning to pay. Adams was going to answer when their host came in, and with a kind of jeering smile said, Well, masters, the squire hath not sent his horses for you yet. Laud help me, how easily some folks make promises. How, says Adams, have you ever known him to do anything of this kind before? Ay, <laughs> Mary, have I, answered the host. It is no business of mine, you know, sir, to say anything to a gentleman to his face. But now he is not here, I will assure you, he hath not his fellow within the three next market-towns. I own I could not help laughing when I heard him offer you the living, for thereby hangs a good jest. I thought he would have offered you my house next, for one is no more his to dispose of than the other. At these words Adams, blessing himself, declared, He had never read of such a monster. But what vexes me most, says he, Is that he hath decoyed us into running up a long debt with you, Which we are not able to pay, For we have no money about us, And what is worse, live at such a distance, That if you should trust us, I am afraid you would lose your money for want of our finding any conveniency of sending it. Trust you, master, says the host, that I will with all my heart. I honour the clergy too much to deny trusting one of them for such a trifle. Besides, I like your fear of never paying me. I have lost many a debt in my lifetime, but was promised to be paid them all in a very short time. I will score this reckoning for the novelty of it. It is the first, I do assure you, of its kind. But what say you, master? 
Shall we have t'other pot before we part? It will waste but a little chalk more, and if you never pay me a shilling, the loss will not ruin me. Adams liked the invitation very well, especially as it was delivered with so hearty an accent. He shook his host by the hand, and thanking him said, he would tarry another pot, rather for the pleasure of such worthy company than for the liquor, adding he was glad to find some Christians left in the kingdom, for that he almost began to suspect that he was sojourning in a country inhabited only by Jews and Turks. The kind host produced the liquor, and Joseph with Fanny retired into the garden, where, while they solaced themselves with amorous discourse, Adam sat down with his host, and both filling their glasses and lighting their pipes, they began that dialogue which the reader will find in the next chapter. Chapter 17 a dialogue between Mr. Abraham Adams and his host, which, by the disagreement in their opinions, seemed to threaten an unlucky catastrophe, had it not been timely prevented by the return of the lovers. Sir, said the host, I assure you, you are not the first to whom our squire hath promised more than he hath performed. He is so famous for this practice that his word will not be taken for much by those who know him. I remember a young fellow whom he promised his parents to make an excise man. The poor people, who could ill afford it, bred their son to writing and accounts and other learning to qualify him for the place, and the boy held up his head above his condition with these hopes nor would he go to plough, nor to any other kind of work, and went constantly dressed as fine as could be, with two clean holland shirts a week, and this for several years, till at last he followed the squire up to London, thinking there to mind him of his promises, but he could never get sight of him, so that, being out of money, and business, he fell into evil company and wicked courses, and in the end came to a sentence of transportation, the news of which broke the mother's heart. I will tell you another true story of him. There was a neighbor of mine, a farmer, who had two sons, whom he bred up to the business. Pretty lads they were. Nothing would serve the squire, but that the youngest must be made a parson, upon which he persuaded the father to send him to school, promising that he would afterwards maintain him at the university, and, when he was of a proper age, give him a living. But after the lad had been seven years at school, and his father brought him to the squire, with a letter from his master that he was fit for the university, the squire, 
instead of minding his promise or sending him thither at his expense only told his father that the young man was a fine scholar and it was a pity he could not afford to keep him at oxford for four or five years more by which time if he could get him a curacy he might have him ordained the farmer said he was not a man sufficient to do any such thing well then answered the squire i am very sorry you have given him so much learning for if he cannot get his living by that it will rather spoil him for anything else and your other son who can hardly write his name will do more at ploughing and sowing and is in a better condition than he and indeed so it proved for the poor lad not finding friends to maintain him in his learning as he had expected and being unwilling to work fell to drinking though he was a very sober lad before and in a short time partly with grief and partly with good liquor fell into a consumption and died nay i can tell you more still there was another a young woman and the handsomest in all this neighbourhood whom he enticed up to london promising to make her a gentlewoman to one of your women of quality but instead of keeping his word we have since heard after having a child by her himself she became a common whore then kept a coffee-house in covent garden and a little after died of the french distemper in a jail i could tell you many more stories but how do you imagine he served me himself you must know sir i was bred a seafaring man and have been many voyages till at last i came to be master of a ship myself and was in a fair way of making a fortune when i was attacked by one of those cursed guarda costas who took our ships before the beginning of the war and after a fight wherein i lost the quarter part of my crew my rigging being all demolished and two shots received between wind and water i was forced to strike the villains carried off my ship a brigantine of one hundred and fifty tons a pretty creature she was and put me a man and a boy and a little bad pink in which with much ado we at last made falmouth though i believe the spaniards did not imagine she could possibly live a day at sea upon my return hither where my wife who was of this country then lived the squire told me he was so pleased with the defence i had made against the enemy that he did not fear getting me promoted to a lieutenancy of a man of war if i would accept of it which i thankfully assured him i would well sir two or three years passed during which i had many repeated promises not only from the squire but as he told me from the lords of the admiralty he never returned from london 
but I was assured I might be satisfied now, for I was certain of the first vacancy, and what surprises me still, when I reflect on it, these assurances were given me with no less confidence, after so many disappointments, than at first. At last, sir, growing weary, and somewhat suspicious, after so much delay, I wrote to a friend in London, who I knew had some acquaintance at the best house in the Admiralty, and desired him to back the squire's interest, for indeed I feared he had solicited the affair with more coldness than he pretended. And what answer do you think my friend sent me? Truly, sir, he acquainted me that the squire had never mentioned my name at the Admiralty in his life, and, unless I had much faithfuler interest, advised me to give over my pretensions, which I immediately did, and with the concurrence of my wife, resolved to set up an alehouse, where you are heartily welcome, and so my service to you, and may the squire and all such sneaking rascals go to the devil together oh fie says adams oh fie he is indeed a wicked man but g will i hope turn his heart to repentance nay if he could but once see the meanness of this detestable vice would he but once reflect that he is one of the most scandalous as well as pernicious liars. Sure, he must despise himself to so intolerable a degree that it would be impossible for him to continue a moment in such a course. And, to confess the truth, notwithstanding the baseness of this character, which he hath too well deserved, he hath, in his countenance, sufficient symptoms of that bona indoles, that sweetness of disposition, which furnishes out a good Christian. Ah, master, master, says the host, if you had travelled as far as I have, and conversed with the many nations where I have traded, you would not give any credit to a man's countenance. Symptoms in his countenance, quotha, I would look there, perhaps, to see whether a man had the smallpox, but for nothing else. He spoke this with so little regard to the parson's observation, that it a good deal nettled him, and taking the pipe hastily from his mouth, he thus answered, Master of mine, perhaps I have travelled a great deal farther than you, without the assistance of a ship, do you imagine sailing by different cities or countries is travelling? No. Caolum non animum mutant qui trans mare curent. I can go farther in an afternoon than you in a twelve-month. What, I suppose you have seen the pillars of Hercules, and perhaps the walls of Carthage? Nay, you may have heard Scylla, and seen Charybdis. You may have entered the closet where Archimedes was found at the taking of Syracuse. 
I suppose you have travelled among the Cyclades, and passed the famous straits which take their name from the unfortunate Helle, whose fate is sweetly described by Apollonius Rhodius. You have passed the very spot, I conceive, where Daedalus fell into that sea, his waxen wings being melted by the sun. You have traversed the Euxine Sea, I make no doubt. Nay, you may have been on the banks of the Caspian, and called at Colchis, to see if there is ever another golden fleece. <clears throat> Not I, truly, master, answered the host. I never touched at any of those places. But I have been at all these, replied Adams. Then I suppose, cries the host, you have been at the East Indies, for there are no such, I will be sworn, either in the West or the Levant. Pray, where's the Levant? quoth Adams. That should be in the East Indies by right. Ho, ho, you are a pretty traveller, cries the host, and not know the Levant? My service to you, master. You must not talk of these things with me. You must not tip us, the traveller. It won't go here. Since thou art so dull to misunderstand me still, quoth Adams, I will inform thee. The travelling, I mean, is in books, the only way of travelling by which any knowledge is to be acquired. From them I learn what I asserted just now, that nature generally imprints such a portraiture of the mind in the countenance that a skilful physiognomist will rarely be deceived. I presume you have never read the story of Socrates to this purpose, and therefore I will tell it you. A certain physiognomist asserted of Socrates that he plainly discovered by his features that he was a rogue in his nature a character so contrary to the tenor of all this great man's actions, and the generally received opinion concerning him, incensed the boys of Athens, so that they threw stones at the physiognomist, and would have demolished him for his ignorance, had not Socrates himself prevented them by confessing the truth of his observations, and acknowledging that, though he corrected his disposition by philosophy, he was, indeed, naturally as inclined to vice as had been predicated of him. Now, pray resolve me, how should a man know this story if he had not read it? Well, master, said the host, and what signifies it whether a man knows it or no? He who goes abroad, as I have done, will always have opportunities enough of knowing the world without troubling his head with Socrates, or any such fellows. Friend, cries Adams, if a man should sail round the world, and anchor in every harbour of it, without learning, he would return home as ignorant as he went out. Lord help you, 
answered the host. That was my boatswain, poor fellow. He could scarce either write or read, and yet he would navigate a ship with any master of a man-o'-war, and a very pretty knowledge of trade he had too. Trade, answered Adams, as Aristotle proves in his first chapter of politics, is below a philosopher and unnatural as it is managed now. The host looked steadfastly at Adams, and, after a minute's silence, asked him if he was one of the writers of the gazetteers. For I have heard, says he, they are writ by parsons. Gazetteers, answered Adams, what is that? It is a dirty newspaper, replied the host, which hath been given away all over the nation for these many years to abuse trade and honest men, which I would not suffer to lie on my table, though it hath been offered me for nothing. Not I, truly, says Adams, I never write anything but sermons, and I assure you I am no enemy to trade, whilst it is consistent with honesty. Nay, I have always looked on the tradesman as a very valuable member of society, and, perhaps, inferior to none but the man of learning. No, I believe he is not, nor to him neither, answered the host. Of what use would learning be in a country without trade? What would all the parsons do to clothe your backs and feed your bellies? Who fetches you your silks and your linens and your wines and all the other necessaries of life? I speak chiefly with regard to the sailors. You should say the extravagancies of life, replied the parson, but admit they were the necessaries, there is something more necessary than life itself, which is provided by learning, I mean the learning of the clergy. Who clothes you with piety, meekness, humility, charity, patience, and all the other Christian virtues? Who feeds your souls with the milk of brotherly love, and diets them with all the dainty food of holiness, which at once cleanses them of all impure carnal affections, and fattens them with the truly rich spirit of grace. Who doth this? I. Who, indeed, cries the host, for I do not remember ever to have seen any such clothing or such feeding. And so, in the meantime, master, my service to you. Adams was going to answer with some severity, when Joseph and Fanny returned and pressed his departure so eagerly that he would not refuse them, and so, grasping his crab-stick, he took leave of his host, neither of them being so well pleased with each other as they had been at their first sitting down together, and with Joseph and Fanny, who both expressed much impatience, departed, and now all together renewed their journey.
End of Book Two, Chapters Sixteen and Seventeen. Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox.